let's turn back over to the Hebrews. This is where I started on Thursday night. And I, I ministered a number of things from Hebrews 7 and 8. And I wound up with Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 that says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And I put this together with John 13, 34, that says Jesus was speaking and he says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. And so what I've been talking about this week is that we have a new covenant with a new commandment. And I've been just trying to contrast the two and show that there is a change. And I have said some things that I know have uh, contradicted the way most of us have been taught, but I've shared it from the word. We've used hundreds and hundreds of scriptures. And so I just want to encourage you that even though what I've said is not, you aren't going to hear very many people say it, it's not wrong. And I encourage you to go to the word and study the word. Please get the CDs and the DVDs of this teaching, because this is stuff that you may never hear another person say. Hopefully you will but I can't guarantee it. There's just not a lot of people that are operating under the new covenant grace. Most people are still living under the law. And so you need to get this and go over it for your own sake. But also this is a great way to share it with other people. Some of you are going to go back to wherever you came from and say, man, I heard some radical things and you're going to throw it out there and people are going to immediately say that can't be right. And uh, they'll just reject it. It would be really nice to be able to give them a DVD or a CD and let them study these things. And it'd be a great way to share it with others. We have some people that take these DVDs and they'll go in uh, home and they'll watch it. And they'll say, do a 30 minute segment. And then they'll just stop and say, what do you think about this? Is this guy crazy? If nothing else, it is going to get a lot of conversation going. And it's a great way to just study the word and say, let's look up all of these scriptures and see what does the word say? And if it, it if it isn't saying this, what is it saying? It's a great way to study the word. And you could have a Bible study. I can guarantee you, you could take these five sessions that I've done this week and you could stay busy for six months or a year discussing this and answering these questions and looking it up. And what about this? And what about that? It'd be a great way for you to have Bible study. And so I encourage you to please get those. Tonight, I want to start in chapter nine, the very next verse. And remember that this wasn't written in chapter and verse. This was all written as one letter. It's not a new thought. I've spent uh, four sessions going elsewhere and showing scriptures about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. But after he had made this statement that there is a new covenant that makes the first covenant an old covenant and that first covenant is ready to vanish away. Then he begins to say some radical, radical stuff right here in Hebrews chapter nine. In verse one, it says, then verily the first covenant, talking about the old covenant of law, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. I'm not gonna take time to explain everything because I really wanna go all the way into the 10th chapter and even the 12th chapter tonight and share some things. So I haven't got time to comment on it. But every one of these words is pregnant with meaning and it's worth you studying. And I just haven't got time to point it out, but it's talking about that there were divine things, in other words, supernatural things in the old covenant, but it was all in worldly or carnal uh, 
uh, what does it say? Carnal, uh, worldly sanctuary. In other words, it used physical, natural things to to represent supernatural, spiritual things that were eternal, but you can't show the infiniteness and the um, of, of the spiritual things in little carnal things. So in other words, what he's saying here is that there were spiritual truths in it, but it was represented in physical, natural, worldly type of ways. And some of it, uh, you know, was not totally accurate. And he spends the rest of this chapter talking about how that some of the Old Testament uh, sacrifices and things that were done were only temporary to illustrate spiritual truths. Now we have the reality in Christ and we don't need to live with the shadows and the representations of the Old Testament. That's the point that he's making. In every verse, you could go into a lot of explanation on this. In verse two, it says, for there was a tabernacle made. This is talking about Moses' tabernacle. They used Moses' tabernacle for over 400 years and then eventually Solomon came along and built a temple and then that temple was destroyed when they went into captivity and there was a second temple built, which was very uh, small compared to Solomon's. But then Herod came along and amplified that and spent 40 something years rebuilding the temple. And that's the temple that Jesus had in his day. And then that was destroyed in 70 AD. But this isn't talking about Herod or Solomon's temple. This is talking about the tabernacle of Moses. There was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Man, I could spend an hour explaining every one of these things. Every one of these things illustrated some spiritual truth. You need to study this on your own. In verse four, it says, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Every one of those sayings is very significant and has direct impact on us and how we relate to God today. They were all symbolic of different things. We need to understand that, but I'm not gonna teach on that tonight. And then in verse five, it says, and over it, this is talking about over the ark of the covenant, the cherubs of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now I want to point this out. This is really important. Every one of these things, the candlestick and uh, the incense and the fact that there was a curtain and it was separated into two parts, the holy of holies, I mean the holy and the holy of holies and then the Ark of the Covenant and all of these things, every one of those things have bearing on us today in our relationship with the Lord. And as he recounted these things, he talked about the cherubs of glory shadowing the mercy seat. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a mercy seat where God said he would meet with people. And there were two cherubs on top of this. In Moses' Ark, the one that God commanded him to build, These were relatively small cherubs and they had their wings faced inward and they touched each other. And some of you have seen some representations of that. But in Solomon's temple, these cherubs were gigantic. The uh, temple was over 60 feet tall and something like 120 feet wide. And each one of these cherubs stood so that one wing touched the wall over here and then touched the other cherub's wing. And then that wing went out 
and touched the other wall. So altogether they spread 120 feet and cherubs are, you know, today we talk about cherubs and sometimes depict them like, um, uh, these little fat babies, naked babies with a bow and that's a cherub, but that's not what the Bible calls a cherub. God set a cherub at the east end of Eden after he drove Adam and Eve out and he had a flaming sword and it turned every direction to protect the tree of life so that no man would ever eat of it and live forever. And cherubs are described in Ezekiel chapter one and Ezekiel chapter 10. They're warrior angels. They are mighty, powerful angels. And the reason it says that we can't talk about these cherubs sitting over the mercy seat now in particular that's significant. You know what he's saying? See, in the holy of all, holy uh, place there, he says that while these things were standing, let me just read a little bit and don't forget what I'm saying. In verse six, now when these things were ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without uh, blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was standing. In other words, this is his way of saying that there were things that were pertinent at that time that don't apply to us today. For instance, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was so that no person could enter into the presence of God. The way to God was not clear. You could only go in one time a year and only one person, the high priest, could go in. Josephus, a a first century historian, wrote that they actually put a rope around the high priest's leg and had him leave the end of that rope out in the place called the holy place because if he didn't cleanse himself properly, and do everything just exactly right. If there was sin in his life that he hadn't atoned for, when he went into the holy place, these cherubs would strike him dead. They were there to protect the holy place and keep people from coming under the presence of God because God was holy and man was unholy. And the cherubs were there to kill any person who stepped into the presence of God without going through everything. And the rope was there so that if the priest wasn't clean and they killed him, nobody could go get him. They didn't want him stinking. So they could put a rope around his leg so that they could drag him out if he died. Boy, how would that make you feel if people put a rope around your leg thinking you may not live through this? (laughs) But you know what this was saying is that here was holy God And there was this veil that separated people from that. And only one person out of millions and millions could go in one time a year only after he had purged himself and then brought in blood to make atonement for the sins of other people. So when that system was working, you could not just go into the presence of God. Only one time a year under very strict circumstances. And you know why? Because these cherubs were there that if there was the slightest sin, if you didn't follow everything exactly, boom, the cherubs would kill you. That's why we can't talk about that now because you know what? The veil has been rent in two through Jesus. And we now can walk right into the presence of God and say, Abba, Father, Daddy, we can jump in his lap. 
There is no cherub that is going to strike you dead because Jesus has removed the separation between man and God. And it is different today than it was in the old covenant. You know, we've got a worship seminar coming up. I think it's next week or sometime within the next few weeks. And anyway, in this worship seminar, our, our praise and worship leader, Daniel Amstutz, just does a wonderful job with this, talking about that people, you know, they sing, let us go into the Holy of Holies and let's go past the veil and let's go this. And we're trying to enter in. And you hear this in music circles often that people are trying to approach into the Holy of Holies and do all of these things. And Daniel says, that's absolutely wrong. And I agree that in the new covenant, the veil has been removed and we dwell with him in heavenly places. We're already there instead of trying to get God to come. I hear people come say, come God. Oh, come rest on us. Oh God, move. (laughs) They'll say, oh man, I feel the Holy Spirit. And then the next breath, come Holy Spirit. It's contradictory. You don't have to get God to come. You don't have to get in past the veil. We, we now have God almighty living on the inside of us. And so in the old Testament, there was a time that when men were separated from God, the old Testament served and illustrated a lot of really good things. One of them was that there was a veil that showed you that you couldn't enter directly into the presence of God. You were unworthy. But in the New Testament, that veil is removed. And now you should have no more conscience of sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse two. If I can talk fast enough, I'm going to cover that tonight. And you can enter boldly into his presence. And so it's different. There was a, there was things to learn, but it's different now. And this is the point that he's making. He said that the first covenant is old. The old is about to pass away. And then he mentions all of these things and he says, it's changed now. It's not the same as it used to be. The veil is removed. These cherubs aren't there anymore. There is no angel standing between you and God because Jesus has made a way. And if you were to have a cherub come stand in between you and God and say, what makes you worthy? You could rebuke him and say, if anybody preaches any other doctrine unto me than that, which has been preached, let him be accursed. Even if it's an angel from God, I curse you for trying to stop me from approach unto God because Jesus has made me worthy. Amen. Big, big different. These are significant things. And go back to verse uh, seven. It says, but into the second or into this holy of holies went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he had offered for himself and for the errors of the people. And so in this ninth chapter, the writer of Hebrews is going to make this point five different times in the ninth chapter that the high priest entered in once to make a sacrifice And he is going to make this point that Jesus only did it once. Whereas under the Old Testament law, the high priest had to go in every year and redo this symbolism because it was not true. It was just a symbol. These animal sacrifices couldn't ever change anything. So they had to constantly be done over and over for each person. Each generation had to constantly see this. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself once and you do not have to be re-cleansed over and over and over and over and over. This is one of the huge differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. 
And yet most Christians don't understand this and they believe that they were forgiven of sins up until the point that they got born again. And then every sin they confess, they got to get it under the blood and repented of, or they can't have fellowship or relationship with God. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. I know some of you are thinking, but that's the way that it is. Let's just read some of these. Look in verse nine. It says, all of these things were a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. The conscience, according to Romans chapter two, verse 15, it says in that verse that your, your conscience is either excusing you or condemning you. Your conscience is the part of you that either soothes everything over or condemns you. And the law makes the condemnation side of your conscience come alive and it just constantly condemns you. I talked about all of that this morning. And the problem about the Old Testament law, it could activate your conscience to condemn you and to show you where you're wrong, but it couldn't excuse you. It couldn't make you feel forgiven because there was no forgiveness under the Old Testament law. And so this is saying that the Old Testament law could not make you perfect concerning your conscience. And yet these next verses are going to show you that the New Testament should totally purge your conscience so that you should have no more conscience of sin. You shouldn't even be thinking in the terms of I've sinned and I've failed and look how I've messed up. That's nearly unbelievable. And because of where the modern day church is, it's so far removed from that, that most people think this has to be heresy. But I want you to keep this in mind as we read these verses. In verse 10, it says you couldn't, in verse nine, you couldn't cleanse them as pertaining to the conscience. In verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washing and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Again, this is like what I talked about last night about uh, Colossians chapter two, verse 16, about restrictions on what you eat and what you drink and the holy days and the new moon and the Sabbath days. We talked about all of that. And this is what it's referring to. And it calls them carnal ordinances. Carnal. Carnal isn't sinful, but it means it's fleshly. It's It's carnal. The word carnal means flesh, as stripped of skin. If you look it up in the Strong's Concordance, it's talking about meat, not your epidermis, not your skin, but meat. And that's, you know, like when you use the word chili con carne, that means chili with meat. That word carne comes from the word carnal, and that's what it's referring to is meat. When you call somebody carnally minded, you're saying they're a meathead. When he's talking about carnal, it just means that it's of your five senses. It's just earthly. It's natural. It's not spiritual. And it had, it had to have carnal, physical, natural things to represent spiritual things because people in the Old Testament weren't spiritual. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. People under the Old Testament weren't born again and they didn't have spiritual perception the way that we do. Some people might question that and think, well, man, I don't seem to have any spiritual perception. 
You can be carnally minded, but you have the ability to understand spiritual things. The Holy Spirit has given a born again person the ability to understand things that Moses, David, Abraham could have never understood. Matter of fact, Peter referred to this and said these Old Testament saints longed to understand the things that are now available to us. They couldn't understand these things. We have a spiritual perception. We have access to spiritual perception that people before the cross didn't have. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It makes a huge difference in your life. And so these were only carnal ordinances imposed on them. Notice the terminology imposed on them. When you impose on a person, this isn't really good. The law was an imposition. It was imposed on them until the time of reformation, talking about when Christ came and there was a reformation. Reformation is different than, you know, just a little change. It talks about like, for instance, we call it the Protestant reformation. People had gotten under Catholicism and into a degenerate Catholicism where they were paying indulgences to pray people out of purgatory and they were killing saints and Fox's book of martyrs and the terrible things. And then Martin Luther comes along and has the Protestant reformation and it totally changed everything. It completely changed the body of Christ. And this is saying that there was a reformation referring to the time that Jesus came. You put all this together and it again shows you that the law was never God's intended best. It shouldn't still be operating. Christians shouldn't still be living by the law today. Those were carnal things imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. The reason we don't have temples today and tabernacles is because Jesus has made us the temple and we don't have to go to a place to find God. God lives on the inside of us and we don't have temples and we don't have uh, an altar and we don't have a holy of holies and an ark of the covenant. Those things were great in their day to picture something that was coming, but now we've got the real deal and we don't have that anymore. If you don't have all of these things, why in the world do we want the law that went along with all of that? We've not only been set free from the temple and all of the sacrifices and stuff, we've been set free from the law that went along with that dispensation. And so it says in verse... um, 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. That's old English for talking about that Jesus was a high priest over his own body, over his own tabernacle. That same terminology is used in first Corinthians chapter five. And it wasn't made with hands. He was created directly by God. He was God manifest in the flesh. And then it says this in verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Did you know if words mean anything, this would just undo, this would unravel religion today if people would believe this 12th verse. That he entered in once once into the holy place and obtained eternal redemption, not redemption until the next time you sin. 
And then that's got to be redeemed again. And then the next time you sin, that's got to be redeemed again and redeemed again. Most Christians don't believe in eternal redemption. They believe in only momentary redemption until the next time you sin. And then that sin has separated you from God again. There's different interpretations of that. The ultra Pentecostals believe that every time you sin, you lose your salvation. And if you were to die with an unconfessed sin in your life, you go to hell because you didn't have that sin confessed. A lesser interpretation, but it's the exact same thing is like some of the major denominations believe that you don't lose your eternal relationship with God, but you lose your fellowship that God won't answer your prayers. God won't give his joy to you. You can't feel the presence of God. You can't be anointed if you have a sin in your life. What that, it's the same thing. It's just like a stick that has two different ends to it. One end says, no, God totally rejects you. The other one says, no, he doesn't totally reject you. He just rejects you partially. But either way, they're saying that that sin is still a transgression between you and God, and it's got to be redeemed. It's got to be atoned for. We come up with statements like, you got to get that sin under the blood. Talking to Christians. This says you get eternal redemption. Colossians chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, or excuse me, uh, Ephesians chapter one, I think it's verse seven. Both of them say, uh, that something, well, let me just read this cause I missed, messed it up. Ephesians chapter one. Let me find this verse. I'm not sure I can quote it. Do you have it in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. That same statement is made in Colossians and it says redemption, even the forgiveness of his sins. So it tells you what redemption is. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews chapter nine, verse 12 says, we have received eternal redemption or eternal forgiveness of sins. So God at salvation forgave you of all sins, not only the sins you had committed up until the time you got born again, but he, he forgave you of all of the sins you will ever commit. Your sins are already forgiven. Some of you are just shaking your head like, how could God forgive a sin before I commit it? Well, you better hope that he can because he only died for sins once 2,000 years ago before you ever committed any. I don't know how God does this, but God knows what you are going to do before you do it. And he dealt with all of your sins, even the ones you hadn't committed. He died 2,000 years ago and forgave me of the sins that I've committed during the last 62 years. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And because of that, I've got eternal redemption. This is so important because see, there's a lot of people that will come to the Lord and they will, they will hear the song just as I am without one plea. And they'll say, father, I don't deserve it. And they'll say, have mercy on me a sinner. And they'll get saved and they will have just a tremendous experience knowing that God forgave them of all of the stuff they did, all adultery, lying, stealing, anything you've ever done, you're forgiven. You're a brand new person and that's wonderful. And they rejoice and they're so happy, but then they go to church (laughs) and they tell them, if you don't read your Bible, God will not bless you. If you don't come to church, if you don't pay your tithes, if you don't do this or this and this, this is sin and it will break fellowship or the Pentecostals will say, you'll go to hell if you don't get that sin confessed. 
And they say, I thought I was forgiven. Well, you were forgiven for the past things, but every time you sin, now you got to get every sin under the blood. And you know what this does? It takes away that joy. That's the reason people don't last on this honeymoon with God because they thought they were forgiven until they went to church and found out that now I I just thought I was forgiven. I was forgiven of all the past stuff, but now I've got to do everything right. And if I mess up, every sin's got to be confessed. And if I don't, I could go to hell and it takes away their joy and they get into a laborious relationship with God. If you could understand that all of your sins, past, present, and future were dealt with, it would transform your relationship with God. I know that this is raising questions. I'm talking as fast as I can. I'm trying to answer them, but I don't want to skip over this point. He says here that Jesus entered in once. He does not over and over and over and over and over and over make an atonement for your sins. And he has not had to make a separate atonement for every individual's sins. He atoned for the sins of the entire human race one time, entered in and made an atonement for all sin. I hesitate to say some things because I hadn't got time to explain it. And some of you will get upset and forget what I'm saying. But I'm going to go ahead and say this. I'm leaving tonight. Amen. So. But you know what? Sin's not a big deal with God. Am I saying that sin wasn't terrible? Sin was, was worse than anybody in here believes. But the sacrifice of Jesus was greater than anybody in here believes. And Jesus totally paid for the sins of the whole world. Charlie and Jill have one song that says just one drop of his blood was greater than all of the sins of the earth. If you had one of these little, you know, scales that has a fulcrum in the middle and these chains holding down. And if you put all of the sin of the entire human race from eternity past to eternity future over here, and that scale went down like that. One drop of Jesus' blood over here would tip the scales. Jesus was so holy that one drop of his blood was worth more than the entire depravity and sin of the human race. And it more than paid for it. It's like if I was trying to pay a bill that was worth $10 and I was scrambling to come up with $10 and somebody walks up and just says, here's a billion dollars. Will that cover it? Jesus' sacrifice paid for more than what the sin demanded. If you understood this, people who think, but I'm so sinful, I'm not sure God could save me. You don't understand the price that was paid for you. This would kill that kind of comment. Man, Jesus, one drop of his blood bought us eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. And I know somebody saying, so I can just go live in sin. You're missing what I'm saying. If you truly understood how much Jesus paid for you and how much he loved you, that love would compel you to live holier accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. But I'm saying that, yes, God loves you in spite of how sorry you are. He bought eternal redemption and he only did it once. There's nothing you can do to change it. 
I need to keep reading because there's so much more. In verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Sad to say, brothers and sisters, most of us haven't been in the new covenant. We've been under the old covenant that activates your conscience and makes your conscience focus on all of your sin and failure. And because of it, there's not one out of a thousand Christians that has a clear conscience and a pure conscience cleansed from dead works. We go around constantly condemned and feeling unworthy. And God, I know you could do it, but I doubt that you'd do it for me because I'm not worthy. That's not the new covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed your conscience. But, but you've got to understand this. There's other scriptures. I'm probably not going to have time to get there, but Hebrews 10, says that we have to enter boldly into the holy of holies and have our conscience purged from dead works, from an evil conscience so that we can enter in. Man, there's many times that this same symbolism, and it says specifically that you've got to purge your conscience. It's not just automatic. You have to take the truth and the truth will set you free from a condemning conscience. But if you're living under the law, it won't. And many of us are going around with a sin consciousness and unworthiness that God isn't imputing unto us. God's not the one who's condemning you. It's religion. It's the law that's condemning you. And then in the 15th verse, for this cause, he is the mediator of the new Testament that by means of death for the redemption, the forgiveness of the transgressions that were under the first Testament, they, which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is just like verse 12, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. There's large segments of the body of Christ that believe that you're saved until the next time you sin and then you backslide. And if you were to die in a backslidden state before you get that sin confessed, you would die and go to hell, even though you might've walked with the Lord for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. If you had a sin and you died in a car wreck before you got that sin confessed, you'd die and go to hell. Large segments of the body of Christ preach that. That is not eternal inheritance. That is momentary inheritance until the next time you blow it. And I'm just telling you, it's impossible for you to live with every single sin confessed. Some things you're doing that are wrong, you don't even recognize that you're wrong. If I really thought that your salvation depended upon you having every single sin confessed, then as soon as you get born again, I'd just kill you. I'd go to hell for doing that, but that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven is just to get saved and then have somebody kill you right then. Because I can guarantee you, you break all kinds of laws. Did you know that the Bible says that you are supposed to obey the laws of the land? The speed limit on many of these roads is 55 or 60. And every time you break it, did you know you broke a law? You're, you're doing things contrary to the word. And some of you, oh, I don't believe God's that nitpicking. Well, in James chapter two, verse 10, it says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. 
If you go 56 miles an hour, according to that verse, it's like there's this huge glass in front of you and me. It wouldn't matter if you threw the grand piano through it or if you made a little tiny hole. If you break a piece of glass, you got to replace the whole thing. Likewise, the law of God is one standard made up of 10,000 different rules. And you may not go commit adultery, but if you break the speed limit, you are guilty of all is what James 2.10 says. I didn't write that. God wrote it. And so if you believe that if you were to commit a sin and have a car wreck and die before you got a chance to commit, uh, confess it, and that would send you to hell. If you believe that, well then going 56 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone would do that to you. You better crawl out from under that old Testament law. (laughs) Nobody can live by that standard. If your salvation is dependent upon you keeping every sin confessed, I guarantee you you aren't going to make it. Some of you right now, the way you are thinking about me is sin. (laughs) Some of the things that you're saying about me right now is sin. You better pray you don't die before you get home and get a chance to confess it. Amen. (laughs) This says we've got eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. And just for time's sake, I'm going to skip on down some verses. But in verse 23, it says, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, talking about the blood of animals and goats, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That's why we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. That was a part of the Old Testament law, but we don't do it today because Jesus became our sacrifice and his sacrifice put an end to all other sacrifice. His sacrifice is so great that there is nothing we can add to it. So we don't have animal sacrifices today. The churches by and large embraced that, but then kept other parts of the law. They just piecemeal, pick and choose which parts they're going to keep. Either the law is for us or it isn't for us. It's all for us or none of it's for us. It can't be a mixture of the two. In verse 24, it says, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. If Jesus was atoning for every single sin and every single individual that gets saved, and if he was applying his blood on the mercy seat every time you sin and then you confess it and he has to reapply it and get that sin under the blood, There would be no such thing as Jesus sitting at the right hand to God, the father. Just think how many Christians there are millions of Christians on the face of the earth and think how many times they sin every day. And how many times they say, father, forgive me. Billions and billions and billions of times every day, Jesus would have to be applying his blood to the mercy seat over and over and over to cleanse this blood and get it under there. He didn't have to apply his blood to you the moment you got saved because he did it one time. He entered in one time into the holy place and he atoned for the sins of the entire world. First John chapter two, verse two says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Jesus has already paid for the sins of the whole world. Even the people who don't accept him have had their sins paid for. Does that mean that they're saved? No, because you have to accept it and receive it. You have to confess it and reach out and take that salvation. But the atonement's already made. People who go to hell are going to go to hell with sins that have been paid for, but they refuse the payment. And they didn't want Jesus to pay for it. So there's some that are just going to do it because they didn't believe in Jesus. They rejected him. And so they will have to stand for their own sins. There's others who believe Jesus existed, but they don't understand the gospel. And they are trying to be holy enough and purge their own sins. And they're looking at their own holiness and trusting in their own goodness. And they will reject Jesus because they think they're good enough. But either way, those people will go to hell with their sins already forgiven. They just refused the payment that was made for it. So the issue isn't telling people about you're a sinner. The issue is telling people about all of your sins are paid for. All you've got to do is receive Jesus. If you understand this, this answers some other questions too. I've had people come to me and say, it doesn't seem fair that a person who is, you know, a housewife and she may have never trusted Jesus, but she wasn't a bad person. She baked cakes and took her kids to things and she was a good person. She didn't go to church, but she wasn't bad. She never killed anybody. It doesn't make, it's not fair that she goes to hell right next to Hitler who killed 6 million people. And people think, how could this be? Because it's not your individual sins that send you to hell. According to John chapter 16, verses eight and nine, it says, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Notice that sin singular. And then in verse nine, it explains what he's talking about of sin because they believe not on me. The only sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting people of is the sin of not believing on Jesus. That's the only sin that will send you to hell. All of your sins have been paid for and as bad as they are, and there are consequences to sin. It's not those sins that are separating you from God because Jesus paid for it. It is the only sin of not accepting Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit's always dealing with people on. And if you understand that, that it's not your individual sins, then Hitler, as bad as killing 6 million Jews was, You know what's worse than killing 6 million Jews? Rejecting Jesus. Hating God. Hating every standard of God. When he said, thou shalt not kill, Hitler decided that that wasn't for him. He claimed to be a Christian, but Hitler wasn't a Christian. Everything about him was contrary to it. He rejected Jesus. He rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He spat in the face of Jesus. And as bad as killing Jews were, rejecting Jesus is a million times worse. Some people disagree with that evaluation, but that's because you don't know how great a sacrifice Jesus made. How how awesome it was for God to send his son. He could have wiped us all out and have started over and he wouldn't have been any worse off. But because of his great love, Jesus became a man. And for 33 years suffered on this earth as a man and then ultimately suffered crucifixion and did all of this because of his great love. And to take that great of a love and ignore it or reject it 
is worse than killing millions of people. And that will explain how a housewife that just thought that I don't need Jesus, I'm a good person. Man, that is such a terrible sin of rejecting Jesus that there isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough for the person who just ignored Jesus and thought he wasn't important. See, this will answer a lot of questions. It's not all of your individual sins. So therefore our relative holiness have nothing to do with whether or not we go to heaven or hell. It all comes down to one thing. The Holy Spirit convicts of one sin and that's the sin of not believing on Jesus. That's what he's convicting us about. And so he entered in once and made one atonement. If it wasn't that way, he would have had to have died millions and millions and millions of times to atone for all of the different people over the ages. And he would have to constantly be reapplying his blood. This is saying it is not that way. So in verse 26, I read the first part of that. It says, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once... Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus isn't dying over and over and over and over and over again. And he's not reapplying his blood every time you sin. He dealt with all of your sins and provided eternal redemption and eternal inheritance for you. It's already done and it's only dependent upon whether you make Jesus your Lord and accept him. If you do that, you are forgiven. Period. And every time you sin does not undo what Jesus did. You know, this is again, so contrary. I know many of you've got a lot of questions and I've got a lot of answers, but I just can't tell you all of it in one night. You need to get my book on spirit, soul, and body or my teaching on spirit, soul, and body. It would explain what I've, the questions that I've just raised in you. How could this be? It could, it be explained by that book, that teaching on spirit, soul, and body. In chapter 10, he goes on to say, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come. Do you remember my message last night about the shadow that the law and all these things were shadows and I used it like if you were standing around the corner of a building. But now if you, if I'm in full view, why would you hug my shadow? Why would you talk to my shadow if I'm here? The law had a shadow that at one time when we couldn't see God, when God hadn't become a man, there was a purpose for this shadow. But now we've got the reality in Christ We don't need that shadow. And it says for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers there in two perfect verse two for then would they not have ceased to be offered? That's a question with the question mark at the end. If the sacrifices in the old Testament could have worked, they would have just offered them one time and that would have been the end of it. But the fact that they repeated these sacrifices over and over was a testament that they were only symbolic. They didn't really do anything. You weren't forgiven under the Old Testament. The word atonement in the Old Testament means a covering. Sins were covered, but redemption means forgiven, obliterated, taken as far as the East is from the West. There's a difference between just an atonement and a redemption. And we have been redeemed and sins aren't just covered. It's not symbolic. 
your sins have been obliterated. They are removed as far as the East is from the West. And that's the reason that we don't continue to offer sacrifices. We don't have to have Jesus come and die over and over again and reapply the blood. And the last part of this verse says, because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. If you could really understand what Jesus did and understand that not only your sins up until the time you got born again were dealt with, but all of your sins, past, present, and even future tens, sins are dealt with. If you could understand that you would never have any more conscience of sin, unworthiness. Does this mean that you would just be free to go live in sin, do whatever? No, because the Holy Spirit would teach you to love other people the way that Christ loved us. And you would be conscious of when you missed it and said, Father, I shouldn't have acted this way. This isn't the way you'd have me to act. And so the Holy Spirit would show you how to act better, but you wouldn't be under condemnation. You wouldn't have this guilt. You wouldn't have this sin consciousness. You would not feel separated from God. It's the law that gives you that. And under the new covenant, we are redeemed from that so that there should be no more conscience of sin. Just for time's sake, I'm going to skip some verses again because I got a lot to say. But in the next few verses, he starts talking about that Jesus died and put a will into effect. A will doesn't go into effect until a person dies. So Jesus had to die to put his last will and testament into effect. But then Jesus rose from the dead to enforce it, to make sure it was administered properly totally unique. Amen. And then it says in verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, this just goes contrary to most religion that no, we weren't sanctified once for all. We were only sanctified until the next time we sin. This says you are sanctified. The word sanctified means made holy set apart. You were sanctified once for all. If words mean anything, how do you deal with this with your current theology? This says one offering. You were sanctified once for all. It's amazing to me how most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. There's probably some people sitting right here saying, it's not what I've been taught. I don't believe that. I'm reading it to you. It's in black and white right here. You've been sanctified once for all in the next verse and every priest. Now he's contrasting. See the way it was done under the old covenant because we've got a new covenant. We don't do it that way anymore. But under the old covenant, it says every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But in contrast to that, this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He offered one sacrifice for all sin of all mankind forever. And he is seated at the right hand. He is not working. He is not forgiving. He's not uh, atoning and getting your sin under the blood. He took care of it. It's already done. And the rest of everything is now us just learning and receiving what Jesus has already provided. 
We are now seated with Christ Jesus. Like I was teaching last night, we are to enter into this rest where it's not about you trying to do something to get God to heal. God's already healed you. He's already healed every person who will ever get healed. Somebody says, well, man, that's bad news because I need to be healed. No, it's good news. He's already done it. And he placed that healing power on the inside of you, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. You don't have to get God to heal you. What you need to do is get rid of your unbelief and just believe that it's done. And the moment you believe it and confess it with your mouth, then the resurrection power of God that was released 2000 years ago flows in your body and you get healed. But God doesn't have to lift a finger to get you healed. He's already done it. Now, will you believe and reach out and take it? It's up to you whether you get healed. It's not up to God whether you get healed. It's up to you whether you have joy. God has already given you love, joy, peace. All of these things, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it's the fruit of the spirit. On the inside of you, you've already got these things. Now, are you gonna renew your mind and go by what the word says you have and walk in it? Or are you gonna sit there and suck your thumb and go by how you feel? Amen. Amen. I'm preaching better than you're listening. So in verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says you were sanctified once for all through the offering of Jesus. And verse 14 says, if you were sanctified, then you have been perfected forever. Not till the next time you sin, but forever. Most people have a disconnect right here because they say this can't be. Why can't it be? Because I know me and I know I'm not perfected. I know I think some rotten things. There may be somebody thinking, man, I got a pornographic addiction. I do terrible things. I say things. I use profanity. I go out and I commit things and see what the problem is. You're looking on the outside. You see yourself in the mirror and you know your actions and you know your thoughts. But the Bible says there's a third part of you and that's the spirit man. And it's the spirit that got born again. You can tell that by observation by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things are become new. You can just tell by observation. It's not talking about your body. When people come down here and get born again at our meetings, if they were a man before they got born again, they're still a man. If they were a woman, they're still a woman. Their body didn't pass away. They didn't become completely new. If they were fat before they got saved, they'll still be fat after they get saved. Your body doesn't instantly change. And it's not talking about your soul either. If you were stupid before you got saved, you'll be stupid after you got saved. Your mind doesn't instantly change. Now it can be changed by the power of God, but it isn't instantly changed. Just by observation, you can tell that it's talking about the spirit is the part of you that got changed. And in the spirit, you have been sanctified and perfected forever. Your born again spirit is holy and pure. Ephesians 4, 24 says, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. 
See, you can't see your spirit in the mirror. You can't feel your spirit. Jesus said that which is spirit is spirit. That which is flesh is flesh in John chapter three. That was just a way of saying that spirit is spirit, flesh is flesh. You cannot feel your spirit. You can't see your spirit. The only way you can tell what's true about your spirit is to go to the word of God. John chapter six, verse 63 says, the last part of that verse says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. God's word is a perfect representation of spirit. You can't go by how you feel. Some people, when I say that you're sanctified and perfected forever, you think that can't be me because you say, I know me. All you know is the carnal part, your physical body and your emotions and your mind. But most of you don't know who you are in Christ. You don't know what Jesus did. And in the spirit, you are perfect. You are pure. You are sanctified and perfected forever. Look over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. Remember that the book of Hebrews wasn't written in chapter and verses. It was one letter. So this is still in context. It's the same letter, the same author, and he's writing about the same thing. And it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, It says, but you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. We were just reading over there in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that you, if if you've been sanctified, you've been made perfect forever, forever. And people look in the mirror and think, how can this be? This isn't perfect. There's got to be something better than this. You search your mind and think it's got to be better than this. But this says it's to the spirits of just man made perfect. Your spirit is the part of you that is sanctified and made perfect. And God is a spirit. John 4, 24 says God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you aren't connecting with God, if it doesn't feel like you're making contact and things are working out, it's because you aren't worshiping him in spirit, the born again part of you that's sanctified and perfected forever. But instead you're coming before him in your body and in your mind and saying, oh God, I'm so unworthy. God, I failed you so much. Anytime you start doing that, you're in the flesh. You're in the soulish realm. If you come before him in spirit and in truth, I don't care what you've done over here in your body. If you were truly born again, your spirit is righteous and holy and sanctified and perfected forever. And if you come before him in Christ Jesus, even if you have blown it big time, you could say, Father, thank you that I am righteous before you because of what Jesus has done. That is awesome. And you know what? I'm running out of time. But let me just say one more thing. Somebody's sitting here thinking, well, what about 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I could minister on this for an hour, but let me just, here's a real quick summary. I haven't got time to explain this. A a man who's getting to be a very well-known minister deals with this verse by saying, and he preaches grace and he preaches the same thing that I preach that sins are forgiven past, present, and future. And the way he deals with this is to say that this is talking about before you're born again. 
and you come to the Lord and you confess your sins and you get born again. But then after that, this doesn't apply to the believer because all of your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. And you know what? I respect this guy, but I I can't agree with that because the whole context of it before and after is talking about my little children. If you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. He's not talking to the unbelievers. And then in chapter two, verse one, he says, these things have I written unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the whole context of this is saying that this is written to Christians, not non-Christians. But here's the way I believe. Your spirit is already sanctified and perfected forever by one sacrifice. You have eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. So you don't lose your right standing because God is a spirit and God is looking at you in the spirit and in the spirit, you're holy and pure even when you sin. But... Romans chapter six, verse 16 says, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to the devil, you give Satan legal access to your body and to your soul. He can't get through to your spirit because Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 says, once you believe you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's like vacuum packed. You're sealed. The Holy Spirit encases your born again spirit. And when a Christian sins, that sin enters into your body. For instance, you could go out and commit sexual sins and get a sexually transmitted disease. That sin can have an effect on your body. It will have an effect on your soul. It will affect your conscience. It will affect the way other people see you. You can be guilty, condemned, angry, bitter, on and on. And so those are reasons enough not to do it, but it doesn't penetrate the seal around your spirit. In the spirit, you retain your righteousness and holiness. You are perfected forever. And since God is a spirit, God looks at you in the spirit and sees you holy, even though in the flesh you did something unholy. Man, that's huge. God is a spirit and he's looking at you in the spirit. So does that mean then that you're just free to go live like the devil? Well, if you want the devil to have access to you and control over you, if you just want to turn your body over to him and say, Satan, shoot your best shot, kill me, make me sick, take my money from me, do everything. If you want to cooperate with the devil and live a defeated, terrible life, then yes, you could be born again and your spirit saved and your body just totally dominated and controlled by the devil. But who wants to live that way? And if you find that you have sin, it doesn't change your spirit because your spirit's been sanctified and perfected forever. How do you get rid of the place that you gave the devil? That's what John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9 is for. If you find that you have sinned, once you confess it, the word confess there means to say the same thing, to agree. In other words, you were saying, God, I don't like your instructions. So I think I'll go do this. And so you do it. And then all of a sudden Satan's got inroad into your life and he's beating up on you. And you come to say, you know what? I was wrong. I think you were right. So you just agree with the Lord and you say, father, you were right. I was wrong. I repent. 
I humble myself and you confess that. It doesn't affect your spirit because your spirit's been sanctified and perfected forever. It doesn't affect your relationship with God, but it does affect your relationship with the devil because now you've repented of that and this forgiveness that was already in your spirit comes out through your soul and cleanses you of your guilt and condemnation and it comes out into your body and even though you gave place to the devil, now he can't dominate you because you've repented of it. You've confessed it. And that forgiveness that was already in your spirit now comes out into your physical body. You know, I've prayed with people with AIDS and I've seen many people with AIDS healed. But I ask them, how did you get it? Some people get AIDS because they've taken a blood transfusion and it wasn't anything to do with it. Some of them got it because they've been out living in sin and committing uh, homosexuality, adultery, or all kinds of things. And you know what? If a person opened up their life through that, I'll still pray for them. God loves them. God can heal them. I've seen people healed of AIDS, but you know what I'll tell them to do? You need to repent. You need to confess that is sin because you gave Satan a legal right into your life. You opened up a door to this and you aren't going to just turn around and walk away from consequences of sin. And so if you opened up the door to this, repent of it. Say, I'm wrong and quit doing it. I've prayed with people before who their life is just a mess and it's because they were shacking up with the person outside of marriage. They weren't following the, the, the instructions of God and their whole life is a mess and they're the ones that let the devil into this relationship because they didn't find, found it on the word of God. They aren't following his leading. And you know what? If they're born again, then I tell them, you know what? God still loves you. You're sanctified and perfect, perfected forever, but you aren't going to get rid of the problems in your marriage until you close the door on the devil that you opened up, until you repent of it, until you quit shacking up with this person, until you get married, until you do what the Word says. If you really believe it, repent and quit doing it. And if a person isn't willing to repent, I'll say, you know what? God loves you, but these are the results of you living that way. And if you're going to do that, you just yielded yourself to the devil and he's going to have access to you. So enjoy it. Enjoy your misery. Some of you thought I was preaching real good up until now. Man, you were lacking this grace and the fact that, man, you're sanctified and perfected forever because you were interpreting this, that I can go live like the devil and woohoo. First of all, let me use this scripture in 1 John chapter 3. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Then verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, Every man... Every man or woman, every person that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you truly understood and accepted what I said, this would not set you free to go live in sin. It would set you free from sin. If you truly had this hope, if you truly understood the grace and the love that I'm communicating tonight, you would seek to live holy. You would purify yourself in the flesh. In the spirit, God has already done it and you're sanctified and perfected forever, but you would seek to live a holy life. A person who would take what I'm saying and use it as an excuse to go live in sin, you ought to get born again. You don't have the spirit of God on the inside of you. 
We're so afraid that somebody's going to take grace and use it to go live in sin. Grace, Titus chapter two, verse 12 says, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If you truly understand the grace of God, you will be so appreciative for how much God loved you that you will wind up serving him more through grace than you ever did through legalism. And then when you do blow it and mess up, you won't feel like, oh God, how could you love me? I just undid everything. I've lost my salvation. I'm backslid. I got to be born again, again. There is no such thing in the Bible as being born again, again, Uh, save, lost, save, lost, save, lost. There is no such thing. But there's people that they, they walk with God and then they mess up and they've lost their salvation. They're going to hell and they're back to square one. You aren't ever going to get very far in your relationship with God if you think you lose your relationship with God every time you sin. Man, this will set you free. And once you understand how great a price that Jesus paid and how he set it up, all dependent upon him and his holiness and not your holiness, you will be so thankful for that that if you are truly born again, you will purify yourself even as he is pure. You will want to live so holy that God, I've got such a treasure on the inside of me. I don't want to ruin. Why would I want to go out and shack up with a prostitute? Go do dope, lie, steal, get drunk. You wouldn't need an escape anymore. You wouldn't need all of that stuff because you would be so high on Jesus. You don't need anything else. I tell you, this is awesome. This is the gospel. Hallelujah. And brothers and sisters, America hasn't rejected the gospel. They've rejected religion. And I agree with them but they haven't rejected the gospel. If we were to preach the gospel, if we were to tell people about the freedom and the liberty and the great love of God, people would flock to God. People would come to him. But man, they're just tired of religion. Religion killed Jesus. Religion is killing America with all of our rules and regulation and guilt and condemnation. I know that I've left some ends undone, but I just, I've I've talked as fast as I can. I've talked as much as I can. The heart can't absorb more than the seat can endure. So I encourage you to please get my materials out there because I've got answers to most of the questions that you're thinking right now, but I just don't have time to answer them. But I've deposited a seed on the inside of you that if you would get this, and let it grow and nourish it. Go to the word and say, Father, what about this? Holy Spirit, teach me. Is this right? Is this wrong? The Holy Spirit would take this and this seed would begin to grow and God would show you things particular to your own life. It would set you free. It would cause your love for God to just go through the roof because he's already done it. Any problem in your life isn't the result of God. It's the results of our ignorance, not knowing what we've got, not knowing how to appropriate it. But we don't need to get God to do something. He's already done it one time, once for all. It's already done. 
You're already healed. By his stripes, you're healed. You're already blessed. You're blessed with all spiritual blessings. You're already forgiven forever. All of your sins forever are forgiven. If you could understand that, it would just set you free. Let me give you one last story. Honest, I'm quitting. But my sister is nine years older than me. She's a godly woman. She's baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaks in tongues. She saw a woman raised from the dead in the back of her car who choked to death on gum one time. And she stopped and prayed for her and saw her raised from the dead. She, she knows better. She's operating in the power of God. And yet she had a daughter that I mean would make a saint cuss. This daughter... My niece is one of the most rebellious kids I've ever seen. And she just knew how to push my sister's hot buttons. And so my sister was making supper for her husband, who was a professor at the university. And he was bringing another professor home. So my sister was cooking a meal and trying to get everything ready for company to come over. And my niece got in and got to ragging on her and just saying things and pushed her hot buttons. And my sister just hauled off and knocked her flat of her back. She was like in high school. My sister just decked her. (laughs) And she knew better than that. And so she ran upstairs and she threw herself across her bed and she said, oh, Jesus, you got to help me. You got to speak to me. If I start crying and repenting over how terrible I was to my own daughter, I won't come out of here until tomorrow morning. I've got company coming. I've got to cook supper. How do I cope? How do I deal with this? And the Lord spoke to her and he said, Joyce, when you were eight years old and got born again, I knew you'd do this. I've already forgiven you of it. I'm not mad. You're forgiven. You know what that did? It allowed my sister to be able to deal with it and go down. It didn't make her, oh, well, no problem. Go down and slap her daughter around some more because I'm already forgiven. No, that's not what it did, but it broke the dominion of that sin because Jesus had already dealt with it. It wasn't a new infraction. God isn't like us that can't see the future. And every time a person does something wrong, we're hurt all over again. God saw every hurt that you would ever do and he forgave you of all of it at one time. And that's not so that you can just go live in sin, but so that when you do miss it, You can go to God and say, Father, thank you that you've already forgiven me. Thank you that this doesn't change our standing. Thank you that I can get back into who I am in Christ and appropriate that and cleanse my conscience and go on. And I can, I do not have to let this sin have dominion over me because I am not under the law, but I'm under grace. Amen. Praise the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. You know, if you aren't born again tonight, if you haven't had Jesus change you, maybe you believe that God exists. You believe Jesus is the son of God, but you haven't committed your life to him and you haven't experienced this. Man, you ought to be running down here to the front. This is such good news. I don't know why in the world you wouldn't just receive that. But if you haven't received Jesus, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. And if you have been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you absolutely need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a separate experience from salvation. I was born again when I was eight, but I wasn't baptized in the Holy Spirit until I was 18. 
And the baptism of the Holy Spirit includes speaking in tongues and other gifts and many things. But one of the things that happens when you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that your understanding just explodes because the Holy Spirit, the one who wrote the Bible, will live on the inside of you and He will explain it to you. You cannot retain the things that I've said tonight without the Holy Spirit. You'll lose it. This is contrary to the way people think. You have to be inspired and have a revelation come from God. If you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need it. So is there anyone here tonight who would say, I need one or both of those. I either need to make Jesus my Lord and receive this great salvation. Or if you've already done that, I need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Anybody here like that? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I see hands back here. Anybody else? Man, we still got a lot of hands. We've already had, I think it's 200 and what? 310. 310 people have already received. And yet we've got more people raising their hand. You know, if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward and we want to pray with you and help you to receive salvation and or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Man, isn't this awesome? This is going to change your life. Y'all will never be the same again. I tell you, God has power. The Bible says Jesus told his disciples and said, don't go anywhere. Don't tell anybody about him being raised from the dead. Think how powerful that was. And yet he told his disciples, don't tell anybody until you receive power from on high when you receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said you'd receive power and that's exactly what's going to happen. You are going to have the power of the Holy Spirit come in you. And he will do many things, transform your life, give you revelation, knowledge, explain things to you. But also there's this gift of speaking in tongues. And I know many of you don't understand why speaking in tongues is important or what it is. I've got a book that I've written on this and I'm going to give every one of you a copy of it. So it will explain it and you need to read it to get the full understanding. But we're going to pray with you quickly. And I believe that God's going to give you the Holy Spirit and you'll spend the rest of your life discovering how powerful the baptism of the Holy Spirit is and the difference it's going to make in your life. But it'll be awesome. Amen. Before I can pray with you to receive the Holy Spirit, you first of all have to be born again. You have to have made Jesus your Lord and not trust in yourself, but trust in him. You have to receive this atonement and be changed in your heart. Is there anybody up here who isn't absolutely certain that you've already done that? Anybody, if that's you, I need you to raise your hand. I need to pray with you. Anybody, here's one right here. Anybody else? Here's another one. Anybody else? Here's another one down here and one down here. Anybody else? You know, some of you may think, well, I hope I am. That's not good enough. The Bible says that when you get born again, you have a witness in yourself and you know that you passed from death unto life. Here's another one. Anybody else? Here's another one that needs to make sure. Anybody else? Here's another one. Praise God. Isn't this great? Awesome. Awesome. 
I really believe that there's lots of people who think that they're a Christian because they're a good person and they believe that God exists. But the Bible says in James chapter two, verse 19, do you believe that there's one God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. That's a sarcastic statement. In other words, the devil believes in God. That doesn't make you saved. What you've got to do is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse nine. You have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you shall be saved. And it's more than just mouthing the words. You have to, in a sense, be saying, I make you my Lord. You have to mean it. You can't live perfectly. You will make mistakes, but you have to be willing to turn your life over to God and say, I make you my Lord. And if you're willing to do that tonight, then he's already forgiven your sins. And that's all he asks is that you just yield to him and give him your life. Let him have control. You won't do it perfectly, but you're willing to make that commitment. If you're willing to do that tonight, then I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer after me. And I'll say words similar to what you need to say. And if you will say these words and mean it from your heart, then you'll be born again instantly, just like that. Isn't that awesome? Man, that is a good deal. Jesus has already forgiven your sins. There's no reason for you not to receive the forgiveness and take advantage of it. So I'm going to ask everybody in here to pray this prayer with me so that they won't feel like we're listening. And I want you to talk directly to God. Just say this. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. Right now, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you believe that? Awesome. Awesome. Praise God. Man, that is great. You know, you may or may not feel anything. I got born again when I was eight years old. And the only thing I felt was just peace because before that I I knew I was going to hell. My dad explained it to me. And when I prayed, I didn't feel anything other than just, wow, I believe I'm saved. And I went out and played. You may not feel much, but I can guarantee you on the inside, you are a brand new person. Old things have passed away. All things are become new. Isn't that great? And now everybody down here has prayed a prayer similar to that. And according to the word, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The reason that's important is because God made you for a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This is what you were made for. You were created for that. And so that means that when we ask God for the Holy Spirit, we don't have to beg and twist his arm. He wants to do this. You were made for this purpose. He wants you to have the Holy Spirit more than you want to have the Holy Spirit. I can promise you that. So we aren't going to beg. We aren't going to plead. Some people teach that you've got to be worthy or God won't fill you with the Holy Spirit. If you could get worthy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. The reason the Holy Spirit is given is to give you power so you can overcome problems. So if you've got problems in your life, if you've got a sin in your life, that's not going to stop God because your spirit is the part that he's going to fill with the Holy Spirit and he wants to do it. So don't let any sense of unworthiness stop you 
from receiving. Like I was talking about, now you've all prayed this prayer and in the Spirit, you're sanctified and perfected forever. So we're just going to pray a simple prayer, open up the doors of this temple and welcome the Holy Spirit to come in. He won't come in without being welcomed. He won't force himself on you. So we're going to pray a very simple prayer. And then I'd like our prayer ministers to come up here and these people are going to stand behind you and they're going to lay hands on you because the Bible says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit is given. So I'm going to lead you in this prayer. We're going to welcome the Holy Spirit. Then they're going to lay hands on you and release this power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And then after they lay hands on you, I want you to quit asking and just take a step of faith and thank God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you feel like. Just believe the Word of God. And just start thanking Him out loud for giving you the Holy Spirit. And then those of us that know how to pray in tongues are going to start praying in tongues because 1 Corinthians 14, 17 says when you pray in tongues, your spirit is giving thanks. And so we're going to start giving thanks in this heavenly language and thanking God for giving you the Holy Spirit. And as we start praying in tongues, I want you to quit thanking in English and start thanking Him in tongues and start praying in tongues with us. It's really that simple. I know some of you think, I don't know how to pray in tongues. What do you do? I've got a book that will explain all of the details of it. It'll tell you all of the reasons that I struggle to pray in tongues. But if you're ready, you can do it right now. Let me just share one thing with you. The number one thing that I've experienced that hinders people from praying in tongues is they think it's going to be forced, that the Holy Spirit's going to take control of you and make you speak out of control and just speak through you. It's not like that. The Bible says in Acts 2, 4, that they spoke with tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them the utterance or the inspiration. It's very similar to when I taught tonight. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired what I said. I believe that He spoke through me, but He didn't take my mouth and make it talk. I thought of the words. I spoke it. That's the reason it came out in Texan. It's because it was me talking, but it was the Holy Spirit leading and inspiring it. And it's the same thing with speaking in tongues. You have to speak. You have to make sounds. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth open, closed. You got to open your mouth. You got to make sounds and by faith believe that the Holy Spirit is inspiring it. So this is the number one thing that hinders people. They just sit there with their mouth open waiting on the Holy Spirit to force you to talk. That's not how it works. You speak and by faith believe that it's the Holy Spirit. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear a person behind you saying when they speak in tongues, but your tongue will be unique to you and you won't be able to follow them and say exactly what they say. Yours will come out different. And when it comes out different, just keep talking. Don't quit. You'll find out later. The Holy Spirit will confirm all of these things to you and you'll get to where you can speak in multiple languages and you'll realize it's not coming out of your brain. It's coming out of your heart. So that's what we're going to do. Y'all ready? That was a question. Are you ready? The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer and I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these people. Thank you especially for those who opened up their lives and made you their Lord. We believe that they have passed from death unto life. 
we believe that we are all now the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you created us to fill with your power. And so now we open up the doors of our temple. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come into our life and to fill us right now. We want your power. We want your Holy Spirit to rule and dominate in us. And so we ask and we believe that we receive. Right now, in the name of Jesus, we lay hands on you and say, receive the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. We loose this power of the Holy Spirit to flow into your body. Holy Spirit, take up residence on the inside of every one of these right now. And we thank you according to the Word of God that you do it. That right now, every single person is experiencing the infilling of the Holy Spirit in their born-again spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Now, those of you that know how to pray in tongues, let's pray in tongues right now. And let's just begin to thank God for what He's doing up here. And as we begin to speak in tongues, you speak with us. Don't listen to yourself. Don't worry about what it sounds like. I've actually heard that there are languages that are just clicks of the tongue. There's languages that are nothing but whistles. It doesn't matter what it sounds like. It's like a baby when they first talk. They aren't making articulate sounds. It's not clear. But that parent knows what that baby's saying. And that daddy is thrilled that they are trying to communicate. Your heavenly father is listening to your heart. Don't worry about what it sounds like. Just speak out right now. Just speak. Just speak. Don't worry about it. Talk to God. The Bible says you're praying from your spirit. You're bypassing your brain, all of your questions, your confusion, your doubt, your unbelief. You're bypassing that and you're praying out of this born again spirit that has been sanctified and perfected forever. It's powerful. It's a pure form of prayer that doesn't have all of the problems in it that you're when you're praying with your brain. Thank you, Jesus. Just worship the Lord. Let's put your hands up. You know, when you lift up your hands, the Bible says you give, you bless the Lord by lifting up your hands in the sanctuary. It's like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I surrender. This is your way of surrendering. It's your way of yielding. You're worshiping the Lord. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Just speak right now. Keep speaking. Talk loud enough that you're over the newness of it. Just speak. Nobody's listening to you except God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, many, many, many of these people are speaking in tongues right now. The power of the Holy Spirit's flowing through them. Father, we just worship you in this language. We yield to the Holy Spirit right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
Let me have your attention here for just a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to give you some instruction that whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because he promised that he would. Luke 11:13 says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You asked tonight and he promised that he would give you the Holy Spirit. So God did give you the Holy Spirit, but not everybody speaks in tongues right away. Not because God doesn't give, but just because we don't know how to receive. When you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's like a pair of tennis shoes. They all come with tongues. Amen. He gave you the Holy Spirit and every one of you got this gift of tongues but you have to understand and yield to it. When I first prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues for three and a half years, but that's because I was a Baptist and I had been taught that this was of the devil and I was just afraid I was going to become demon possessed if I spoke in tongues. And so it took me a while to get my questions answered, but I've written them all in a book and I've explained this. This book has two parts to it. The first part is about what true salvation is and what it means and what happens to you. So for those of you who prayed tonight to make Jesus your Lord, it will explain that. And you've got to understand what happened to get the full benefit. And then the second part is about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It talks about speaking in tongues. It gives all of the fears and the reasons I was told that it, I couldn't do it. And I overcame them. And I've had thousands and thousands of people read this book and speak in tongues after reading this book. So I want to give every one of you a book because it's important that you understand what happened. If you spoke in tongues, great, but it's more than what you experienced tonight. If you didn't speak in tongues, you still receive the Holy Spirit and this book will help you to do it. So we just want you to get the full impact of what God has done. So if you would, we've got Robert right here in the aisle. He's a man standing up with his Bible up. And if you would follow him right down this aisle, he will uh, give you this book. They will help you. If you have questions, they'll answer your questions. They have people that will pray with you and help you. And we just want you to get the full impact out of this. So just follow Robert. It'll only take a few minutes. Let's praise God for all of these. Isn't this awesome? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I believe this is going to change your life. Thank you, Father. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You know, if we had 310 before this group, I bet you we had how many? 68. So it's around 380 people that it came forward to receive. And how many had received salvation? Hey, Carly. Carly, how many had received salvation before tonight? 18 before tonight. And how many tonight? Oh, no, there was a lot more than four. There was probably close to a dozen tonight by the time they got through raising their hands. So, oh, 22 tonight. 18 before tonight and however many prayed tonight. So isn't that great? Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus, for the great things that happened. If you need prayer for anything, did you know when you understand how much God loves you and when you get rid of a sin consciousness and find out that God's not holding your sins against you, it causes boldness to rise up. Proverbs chapter 28, verse one says, the righteous are bold as a lion. And some of you may have known that God could do something, but you didn't have any boldness to approach under the throne of grace and obtain what you needed. And if you receive the message tonight, you could come forward and agree with somebody and praise God the healing that you've been praying for for years could manifest itself tonight just because you no longer are letting your conscience condemn you. So if you need prayer for anything, these are our prayer ministers and I would like to give you an invitation to come forward right now and let someone just agree with you and pray with you and we're gonna believe God for miracles. If you need prayer for anything, come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers pray with you. Again, let me mention to the rest of you that these, this teaching, I've taught on this many times, but I put it together totally different than I have in the past. I think this is a keeper. I think it's going to help people to understand it and receive it. And you need to get this and listen to it over and over. And also you need to get this and share with other people. So please take advantage of our DVDs and CDs. They're already duplicated outside and you can go out there and get them. And the rest of you tonight, I'm going to release the crowd because my crew has to start taking things down and uh, they stay up until two or three in the morning. So that's the reason we started earlier. I'm going to end a little bit earlier tonight to give them an opportunity to get through and go to bed at a decent hour. Amen. So you're welcome to come forward. These people are here to pray with you and help you. But the rest of you, I'm dismissing you. Thank you for coming. And I'll see you on TV. Amen. Make sure you get all the tapes and CDs. Thank you for coming. God bless you.